Welcome to the Province of Witness. This is Pastor Patrick Hines here at Ridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. And today I'm going to do a little blast from the past. Um, I kept a lot of the old uh, videos and files from uh, Toward a Biblical and Christian Worldview, which is probably the worst title ever come up with for a YouTube channel because it's way too long. And back then I was responding to Hank Hanegraaff and ended up getting into a lot of uh, interesting dialogues with people from the Eastern Orthodox religion because they were unhappy with uh, my criticisms of Hank Hanegraaff. And I don't know how these people found my videos and stuff, but they, they did. And uh, there was one fellow in particular um, who was commenting on, on videos and I was responding to him. And he was a very interesting person. He was a uh, Look, looks real young, and uh, he and his wife uh, evidently uh, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy from uh, some form of Protestantism, apparently. But I noticed that this guy was a little bit different because he sounded like a flaming liberal. And it was very strange talking to him and, and dialoguing with him. But eventually he sent me a link to a long sermon, I think it was 56 minutes long, which I guess that's not that long. I've preached, I've preached that long before. Um, but anyway, it was, a, it was a fairly lengthy sermon on the cross from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. Now, the, the sermon is by a, a fellow who's actually, I didn't know this at the time I did this first video, um, which I'm just going to put the audio here on the Protestant Witness. Uh, he died, I think, back in, in uh, 2015. Uh, but I, I assumed he was someone who was still alive and preaching now. But it was really sad to listen to this sermon, and I responded to it in a fairly passionate way because um, it is one of the most direct uh, denials of the Christian faith I've ever listened to. Um, and listening to Father Thomas Hopko preach uh, was literally like being transported into the past to a sermon by someone like Harry Emerson Fosdick, Henry Van Dyke, uh, or Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, this guy does not believe that God has wrath against sin, uh, does not believe that God uh, ha is required by his holiness and his uh, retributive justice to punish sin. And because of that, this man's understanding of what Jesus did when he died is as flawed fatally as it could possibly be. And this young guy sent me this a link to this sermon uh, and begged me, you know, pastor, please, you know, with an open heart and an open mind, listen to this sermon. And it was appalling. But it was a great opportunity to preach the gospel. It was a great opportunity to contrast um, this uh, Eastern Orthodox priest's uh, understanding of Christianity and of the Bible with the truth. And a number of people found this uh, video to be very helpful. And there's actually a two-part, it's a two-part video, the first uh, video it's just to like about the first half of the sermon, and then I, I took did another episode of uh, Toward a Biblical and Christian Worldview way back. Um, but now I'm just going to make it two installments of the Protestant Witness. So this is my uh, pretty passionate response to this. I, I had listened to the sermon a couple times. I went like jogging and listened to it uh, twice because I kept thinking, was, was there something in here that was supposed to impress me? Because it was just terrible. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. Just brace yourself. Uh, this is a... Pretty bad, pretty bad sermon um, by a man uh, who uh, very sadly has died. I, I hope that uh, before he, he died that he repudiated this and um, actually believed what Scripture says about the cross of Jesus Christ. But um, I hope that you will find this uh, to be helpful. And just FYI, 
I used to put this cheesy Constantinople song uh, way back when I was doing when I first started doing Eastern Orthodoxy videos. So just bear with me. The sound quality is not very good, but you'll hear the the silly song. And I was just looking for something to put at the beginning of these, and I, I called it Radio Free Constantinople because uh, uh, James White. Uh, does a Radio Free Geneva um, with his anti-Calvinism stuff. So, uh, yeah, not not very original, but um, yeah, the, that was fun. So, enjoy. Today is our first ever Radio Free Constantinople. Sorry, I don't have a good introduction, um, but the Constantinople song um, I thought would be somewhat appropriate. Radio Free Constantinople. Uh, I know Dr. White has done Radio Free Geneva, Radio Free Damascus, you know, responding to the anti-Calvinist uh, screeds that are out there on the internet and responding to Muslim attacks on Christianity, Radio Free Damascus. Well, I was given a link to a sermon um, by an Eastern Orthodox clergy person of some kind, and I wanted to do a program uh, and start responding to it. Probably, this is probably going to take several programs. I think it'd probably take forever to get through. It's 56 minutes long, 56 minutes and 34 seconds. Um, and this is uh, Father Hopko is his, is his name. And I actually had heard him before. Um, there's a, a TV program called Orthodoxy Today and had listened to a couple of those on uh, YouTube and um, I thought, wow, he sounds um, like he's a liberal. Uh, and this sermon here, I've listened to it a couple times. Um, it's called Understanding Jesus' Death. And it seemed like it was some kind of an outreach of some kind to... Uh, uh, non-orthodox people, or maybe even people with no exposure to um, the to the Christianity at all, because uh, a lot of times he, he talks about, and those are part of the 27 books that we call the New Testament. I'm like, are there, are there people there that have never heard of Christianity or something? You have to tell them that those are in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. But that's what it sounded like. It sounded like it was some kind of an evangelistic uh, actually, I shouldn't say evangelistic because there is, there is no gospel to anything that this guy has to say. Um, in fact, the uh, the sermon seems to have as its primary focus um, the repudiation of everything that is taught in Scripture about the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, you know, I've just been reading a book on the atonement uh, by the late Dr. Archibald Alexander Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge. And I came across a section that reminded me a lot of this particular message that I listened to by Father Hopko. Uh, Charles Hodge here says, uh, regarding those who oppose the idea of a substitutionary uh, atonement where Jesus is indeed punished at the cross for the sins of his people, uh, he says this, <clears throat> quote, besides these very men necessarily violate their own principle 
showing that practically it serves only as a cover under which their hostility to the truth is disguised. It is plain enough that Coleridge, that was a person he's responding to, Coleridge held and taught under all the cloud of his mysterious language the old, meager, and oft-discarded moral theory of the atonement. The Reverend, the Reverend Subdean Garden, that's another guy, in the Tracts for Priests and People, makes it very plain that while his professed object is to maintain the atonement as a fact, while all human theories as to its nature are alike rejected, his real interest in the matter is to reject the principle which has been always professed by the church in all its branches, that the direct and central design and effect of Christ's death was to propitiate the principle of justice in the divine nature. The same is true in degree also in the advocates of the governmental theory. Its positions are possible only when vaguely and generally stated. When a strict account is asked as to what is meant by a substitute for a penalty, or as to the connection between the non-penal sufferings of an innocent person and the forgiveness of the unpunished sins of the guilty subjects of divine government, no answer is made, and we venture to assert that upon their theory, no answer is possible. And I would say exactly all those things that Dr. Hodge says to uh, this this guy, uh, Father Hopko. Um, he detests the idea that Jesus is bearing uh, divine justice upon the cross, that he is bearing the, uh, bearing the penalty uh, of sin on the cross. And yet, in other places in the sermon, he'll affirm that, so what exactly does it mean that he satisfies divine justice? And then, and then you just think, this sermon, this message, I've listened to it twice. Okay, so this will be the third time I've listened to it, going through it here um, in installments here. And it is, without question, the most thoroughly confusing sermon I've ever listened to on any topic. On any topic. And he makes errors um, concerning the original languages many times uh, in this. He's, he's quoting stuff, I think, from memory. This sounds like kind of a polished presentation that he's made before, but we'll, we'll go through a lot of that stuff. But all of that is just window dressing to hide his prejudice uh, against the idea that Jesus' death on the cross actually satisfies divine just, justice by taking the punishment for sin away. And he knows he's got a lot to deal with because that is one of the clearest teachings of the Bible from the beginning to the end it is. And so this sermon is an exercise in obfuscation by a person who rejects sola scriptura. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Um, those who reject and deny the doctrine of sola scriptura, they can't do exegesis of scripture. They can't. They are not capable of doing it. As long as there's this other authority in place that's telling them what they have to see and what scripture is allowed to say, they, they can't handle scripture accurately. They just can't. And so I would also assert this, having listened to this sermon twice, this man's understanding of Christianity, his understanding of, of the Christian faith can be what it is had Jesus of Nazareth never lived, died, or rose from the dead. Because that doesn't really do it. Somehow that brings victory and makes everything right, but it's not taking away punishment. Somehow it just makes everything right. And you're left go going... You know, for those who have studied historical theology and know about the history of the doctrine of the atonement, we've heard that before. Uh, we've heard that in recent years uh, from the liberals and from neo-Orthodox commentators and folks like that. I wasn't expecting to hear 
a sermon that reminded me of something by Friedrich Schleiermacher from a, an allegedly ostensibly conservative Eastern Orthodox person. But that said, that introductory stuff aside, let's go ahead and get into it. This is going to take several installments here to get through, but let's go ahead and listen to Father Hopko. As Father mentioned, this midweek of the Great Fast is the week dedicated to the cross. The cross is there, decorated. It's usually right in the middle of the church when the chairs aren't in. And we have been contemplating the cross of Christ Friday night, all day yesterday, and this morning at the liturgy, and then now tonight we're finishing. Tonight we have a very specific topic, and that has to do with the understanding of Jesus' death as an expiation or a propitiation for sin, and as a redemption, a buying back, or a ransom. These are all words that are biblical words. They're Old Testamental words. They're New Testamental words. And he's, he's going to have to try to show you why they don't actually mean what they mean. The word propitiation, hilasterion in Greek, hilasmas, means a sacrifice which removes divine anger and wrath. That's what the word means. And he, he knows that if he's got an evangelical audience, he's going to have to try to explain this stuff away. So he's already preparing them for it. Why is it that when Jesus, because Jesus is crucified, uh, and indeed because of his whole life, which is culminated ultimately in his passion and death, why is this considered to be a redemption, our redemption, or a redemption from our sins? In popular way of putting it, which is also written in, for example, the writings of St. Paul, <laughs> He, he says that in the, in the popular way of putting it, and also the writings of St. Paul. Yeah, that's right. This is biblical stuff that he's setting you up to reject. It would be that Christ died for us. He died for us. Pronobis, or hyperimon. He died for us. Right. Hyperhemon in Greek means in behalf of us. Um, that preposition, huper, is very important. It, it has to do with substitution. In behalf of us. Huper hemon means in behalf of us. And how is that understood, especially in terms of ransom, in terms of payment, because the uh, imagery is used of bought with a price. <laughs> we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him because he purchased us with his blood. Right. These are images that are used in scriptures. Yeah, and, and the, the way that they're used in scriptures is very clear. Uh, Romans chapter 5 um, and uh, Romans chapter 3 uh, were justified by the blood of Christ, me meaning what? It is the shed blood of Jesus that, that deals with divine anger, divine punishment for sin. That is what appeases the wrath of God. That's what hilasterion means. That's what propitiation means. That's why the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, where the wings of the ark of the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant met is the mercy seat, the propitiatory, the hilasterion. Um, and that would be the removal of divine wrath, divine punishment for sin. So he, these are all things that this guy not only does not believe, 
but detests, as you're going to hear. In the Hebrew scriptures, uh, they're used in certain ways, and then they're used in the scriptures of what we call the writings of the New Testament. See, that, that's why I thought this must be a sermon that was meant for people who have a pagan background, no exposure to Christianity at all. The writings of what we call the New Testament. R really? Are there people there that had never even heard of the New Testament? It sounds like it. All of which were written by Jews and were interpreting the law, the Psalms, and the prophets of what we would call the Old, Old Testament. So what we want to do tonight is to focus on that particular issue and to do so, as Father John mentioned, because it really appears that some Christians, perhaps many, perhaps even most. <laughs> People who read the Bible, yeah, uh, think what he's about to say. Listen. <laughs> understand the suffering and the death of Christ when they're looking at it within these images, primarily in terms of punishment. Because there's no other way to look at it. What does the scripture teach us? The wages of sin is death. So what did Jesus have to come do? Die. The punishment, the penalty for sin against God is death. So what did Jesus have to come do? Take the punishment. He died for our sins. He took the punishment, the wrath, all of it upon himself. That's why the Garden of Gethsemane, you see him praying, Mark 14, 32 and following. He fell falling down to the ground. He's praying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It was such a horrific ordeal. He knows that the full force of the anger of God against sin uh, is coming. But this guy, this, this person preaching this message, he doesn't believe that. Of punishment. Simplistically put, very oversimplistically put, but sometimes that oversimplistic way is expressed very graphically and very strongly in certain type of writing and in film. For example, the film by Mel Gibson that was quite popular a couple of years ago around this time of year. What was it called? The Passion of the Christ. Just say no to The Passion of the Christ. It's a, it's a, uh, a horrendous movie. Um, my favorite part of that movie is um, Peter... When Peter betrays Jesus and he goes to Mary, and he's calling her mother. <laughs> Just think, it's a it's a Roman Catholic hit piece, is what was what that film is, and all the weird stuff in it. You know, it's just you want to understand that the death of Jesus Christ, God gave us His Word. Read one of the Gospels. Read John chapter eighteen through the end of the Gospel of John, and um, that there's where you will see what the death of Jesus is about in terms of what happened. It seems to be something like this. Human beings. Okay, that, I want to get prepared for this. Here he explains Christianity. He explains Christianity in, in the simple, straightforward terms that is given to us in the Bible, and then he rejects it. So listen carefully. Adam or humanity has sinned. God is angry because of the sin. And in order to be made right with God, you got to get punished for what you have done. Okay, so Adam has sinned, and all human humanity in him has sinned, and God is angry. Notice he, he chuckles when he says that. It's almost like he doesn't believe that, that God is angry at sin. Um, I just looked through, just you know, randomly picked one book of the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. 
Numbers 11, verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Numbers 11, verse 10. Then Moses uh, heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Numbers 12, 9. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. Numbers 22, 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. This is Balaam uh, riding a donkey and so on. Uh, Numbers 25, the issue of, of Baal of Peor, where the people were engaged in immorality there. Numbers 25, 3. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out, out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Numbers 32, 10. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, etc. Numbers 32, 13. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. Verse 14. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of Yahweh against Israel. I think the anger of the Lord is a, is a real thing. Uh, it's a real issue. Human beings uh, are deserving of punishment. When God first made his covenant with Adam in Genesis 2.16, he says, uh, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Paul's interpretation of that, Romans 5.12-19, Through one man's disobedience, um, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's why everybody dies. Death is, is everybody listening, the punishment for sin. That's why the second Adam, when he came into the world, Jesus Christ had to do what? Die to take the punishment for sin away so that in him we would have everlasting life. But listen as he continues. However, since it is God who is offended, human beings cannot pay the proper penalty or the proper punishment. There no, it's not because it's God who's offended. It's because we are we are finite, um, and He's infinite, and the sin that we've committed against Him um, incurs infinite debt, infinite and infinite uh, wrath. Therefore, God so loved the world. <laughs> it's, it's just weird. it's very odd to me. Uh, uh, this is the third time I've listened to this sermon. This man, and, and also in the program, the Orthodoxy today, with sublime awe and reverence, will quote Eastern Orthodox um, theologians. But when he quotes scripture, he'll, he'll finish quotations of scripture with a chuckle. He's mocking the Bible. For God to love the world. <laughs> oh, that's not funny. That's John 3.16. That's something our Lord said, that it was inscripturated for us. That he sent his only son, who is divine with the same divinity as God is himself. Yes. Born on earth of the virgin, born as a human. Yes. To pay the penalty of punishment. Yes. That is due to the sins of humanity. <laughs> and that therefore the passion and suffering of Christ and his being put to death is interpreted as a punishment for our guilt. That's exactly what it is. 
That's exactly what it is. Listen to Romans 3, uh, 18 and following. After you get that whole catena of, pa of passages from the Psalms and the prophets from Romans 3, 9 through 17, it finishes with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Guilty before God. And then when Paul announces the gospel, how does he describe it? But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is, hilasterion, a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his dikaiosune, his righteousness, his justice. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his dikaiosune, his righteousness, his justice, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's exactly what this guy is denying. Listen. If you've committed a crime by law, you got to pay the penalty. Yeah. We're guilty of having broken the law of God. That's why all of us are going to die. Now, if you're guilty, you got to pay the penalty. Yeah. That's the whole reason Jesus came, was to take the punitive retribution, the punishment, the penalty, what scripture calls the misthos, the wages of sin, which is death, were laid upon him. The penalty has to be equal to the crime. Yeah. But if you offend God, then you have to pay a divine penalty. Right. But no one can pay a divine penalty. The whole of humanity cannot pay a divine penalty. That's exactly correct. In fact, that just reminded me of a Psalm 49 uh, says something to that effect, as I recall. Listen, um, for their redemption is costly. Of the, the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that they sh that he should uh, continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Uh, for he sees, yeah, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. Indeed. Because none of us are divine. So then the solution to that particular problem is... Uh, just bear in mind, these are things, this is what he does not believe. He does not believe this. This is the, the view that most Christians even believe this silliness. Is God loves the world, and it's an act of love, sends his son to be punished, to suffer, yeah. and the penalty is suffering. That's the demonstration of God's dikaiosune, his justice, his righteousness. Romans chapter 3, 24, 25, and 26. Right there, black ink on white paper. He doesn't believe it. You see, getting beaten, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, nailed to the cross, and killed. Yeah. And then God is satisfied. Exactly. That's the whole point of everything. Listen to the old prophecy of this from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You hear that? The wounds, the, the beating on his head with the, with the reeds, with people's hands, the, the scourging, the mocking, the spitting. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for 
our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are here healed. We are listening to a man mocking, mocking what Jesus did to save his people from their sins. Unbelievable. It's, this is theory is even sometimes called the satisfaction theory. <laughs> <laughs> He's just he just laughs at it. Wow. You gotta satisfy divine justice. That's what Romans three is talking about. The demonstration of his righteousness through faith in his blood, his shed blood being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, to satisfy divine justice, define dikaiosune, righteousness. That's what the, the shed blood of Christ on the cross does. And you got to assuage divine wrath. That's what hilasterion means. A sacrifice which turns aside divine wrath. That, that's what Helasmas and Helasterion are talking about. The turning away of the anger of God against sin. Uh, the turning away of the punishment for sin. And the only way the wrath of God can be taken off from us is if justice is served. <laughs> and the only way that justice can be served is if the penalty is paid. And the only way the penalty... Do, do you hear the mockery? From this guy? He's mocking this. Romans 5, 8. Listen to God's word. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Right there. Penalty can be paid as if there is a divine victim who gets punished enough that God would be satisfied. Sometimes this theory is called the vicarious atonement theory, <laughs> that God's son, Jesus, is in our place. We can't do it. That's what huper hemon means. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, huper hemon, in behalf of us. Jesus was cursed, Galatians 3.13. The curse of the law, the curse of our disobedience to it, fell upon Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, huper hemon, in behalf of us. Divine justice is demonstrated and satisfied by the death of Jesus and his shed blood. And this guy is not only rejects that, uh, he's mocking it. So he takes our place. Yeah, that's what Huperhemon means. Takes our place in behalf of us. He takes our place and stands in our stead, kind of like a scapegoat. Which is an image from Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament. Kind of like a scapegoat. I mean, yeah, that's one of the images in the Old Testament that that deals with this issue and explains it exactly. 
the whole idea of the, the entire sacrificial system. Think about the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. What would they do? When you laid your hands on the, the head of the animal, there was a transference of guilt, and it shall make atonement for you. The scapegoat, it took, it bore away the sins of the people. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Just a beautiful picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. And what did the angel of Yahweh do when he saw the blood of the lamb? He would pass over that house. Why? Justice has been satisfied, at least in a prefigured sense there in the Old Testament. That's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, I believe it is, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, in behalf of us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because the punishment for sin has fallen on him. That's how I'm reconciled to God. This is the heart of Christianity. If you don't get this, you don't get anything. In the Old Covenant, or in the Hellenistic world, the pharmakos, some kind of a victim that's offered for the sake of the healing or the salvation or the liberation or the redemption of other people. And that's a common theme in human life and human literature, both Abrahamic, both uh, Jewish, Muslim, Christian tradition, as well as <laughs> the, and the Christian tradition, yeah, you can't understand the the faith at all without those images, without because those are the images the Bible uses: redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, ransom. I mean, it's right there. As Hellenistic and even other peoples on the planet Earth, the idea of the innocent victim being sacrificed for the sake of others and so on to pay the penalty—that's the whole point. That's the whole, that's the Christian faith. For you. Jesus himself said to his opponents, which of you convicts me of sin? Jesus committed no sin. As the book of Hebrews says, he was tempted at all points just as we are, yet without sin. His sinless perfection is what makes him able to bear the wrath and punishment for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. To get rid of the guilt and so that's it. Yeah, that's what Romans 3.19. All the world is guilty before God. That's what the scripture says. This guy doesn't believe what scripture says, but that's not going to affect me. Remember what I said? Those who deny sola scriptura, they can't read the Bible. They can't read scripture. They don't, they don't care what the Bible says. They have another authority that tells them what to believe. And so now you have a guy that doesn't even understand the, the heart and soul of the entire Christian faith. And not only doesn't understand it, but is mocking it a kind of theme that human beings are familiar with. So it's sometimes called a vicarious atonement. Sometimes it's called the satisfaction. How do you have a non-vicarious atonement? How do you have a non-substitutionary atonement? Jesus atoned for, I don't know, not, not for our sins. No, 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 no. He could not punish for anything. See, that's why I said this guy's understanding of Christianity can be what it is without the cross. That's a problem. To satisfy the and that's the same thing I always thought, too, about the liberals and the neo-orthodox um, and other false religions um, through the ages that I've studied. Condition of the law to satisfy divine wrath. Sometimes it's called substitutionary. That's what huper hemon means, in behalf of us. He is the substitute in behalf of us. In our place. And that's a way that many people understand the expression, Christ died for us. What other way to understand it is there? He certainly doesn't give us one. If you're hoping to hear one, you're not going to hear it. Christ died for you. Christ died for me. It's interpreted as being in place of me. 
That's what huper hemon means in behalf of us. Some people interpret it. That's not an interpretation. That's what the words mean. And then there's a kind of further interpretation that because this has happened, that then I can, um, I can, uh, how can you say, plug into it and make it my own, you see. And that is often explained that the way you do it, and here, again, this is incredibly oversimplified in the caricature almost form, but historically, the ways that were, um, I'm tempted to say dreamt up, <laughs> uh, to explain this. <laughs> do, you hear his contempt? How do we, uh, uh, so this is all dreamed up. How do we uh, tap into this or make it our own? Um, you repent and believe the gospel. That's, read the book of Acts. That's what the people said. What must we do to be saved? Re repent and believe. Re repent and be baptized. Believe. That, that's what the apostles said to people. And by the way, historically, this uh, theory was first very detailed and written by a man called Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, that always blows my mind. I, I've heard so many of these people make this claim um, that the first time anyone ever says uh, something about this is Anselm um, Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. I mean, it is just ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. The idea that um, the first time anyone ever comes up with this idea is, is that is uh, Credeus Homo by Anselm, which is, by the way, which is a great, uh, great uh, book on this issue. I'd like to read a quotation, one of my favorite quotations uh, from church history. Uh, this is, uh, let me just read the quotation and I'll give you the citation here in a moment. Oh, the sweet exchange for what else but his righteousness would have covered our sins. In whom was it possible for us lawless and ungodly men to have been justified, save only in the Son of God? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the inscrutable creation. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the iniquity of many should be concealed in one righteous man. And the righteousness of one should justify many that are iniquitous. Having then in the former time demonstrated the inability of our nature to obtain life, and having now revealed a Savior able to save even creatures which have no ability, he willed that for both reasons we should believe in his goodness and should regard him as nurse, father, teacher, counselor, physician, mind, light, honor, glory, strength, and life. Listen to that. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the iniquity of many should be concealed in one righteous man, and the righteousness of one should justify many that are iniquitous. That's from the epistle of uh, uh, Mathetes to Diognetus in the year 130 AD. Uh, also, Goshok is another one who very clearly teaches the idea of substitutionary atonement. Um, it's found in many others. I would recommend the first 248 pages of James Buchanan's work uh, on justification, the history of the doctrine of justification. There are clear witnesses and testimonies to this in every century from the time the apostles uh, died. Who was in England, who was a Benedictine a monk in the 11th century. He wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And what I'm describing now is a or the popular understanding of what he said. Some of you might want to get into a debate about what he actually said, 
And I wouldn't mind doing that if you would like to. It might be boring to many people here. Be boring. Wouldn't be boring to me. Cordes Hall is a great book. Here, but I think there's a way in which he could be understood as an Augustinian Platonist uh, rather than a feudalistic Middle Age man. But in any and the fact is, you could be understand very easily as following the worldview of Plotinus as well, if you want to have that debate. In any case, this became a popular teaching, and then the question was, well, how do I relate to Christ's death? If he died for me, so that the uh, effects of his death could become my own. And here again, in a very oversimplified manner, there were certain Christians who said, you do this by acquiring the merits of Christ's death on the cross through actions of the church, like sacraments, making pilgrimages, giving donations. Right, which really is a complete repudiation of the concept excuse me, of grace. You don't get the merits of Christ by, by doing works. Um, it's always best just go back to what scripture says. How are we justified? By faith, apart from works. And there was even a system developed that each person has so much punishment to pay for their sins, and they've got to pay it before they die. And this is, of course, talking about Catholicism, the medieval Roman Catholic synthesis, and the whole idea of temporal um, and eternal guilt and venial and mortal sin, and so on and so forth, which I would categorically reject, um, evidently, as he would as well. It was called the temporal punishment due to sin. But if you couldn't pay the punishment before you died, then you went to purgatory. And then that punishment was even measured symbolically or literally, depending on how people interpret it, as days, so many days of punishment that you would have to pay. Then the claim was if you did certain actions, like donations, pilgrimages, even beatings, people would beat themselves and so on to pay off the days, and then they had less to suffer and they could go to heaven when they died. And that's true. That's what medieval Rome was like. And if they didn't, they went to purgatory and then they either paid the punishment or actions in the church, like having masses for them or lighting candles for them or giving donations for them or going on pilgrimages for them could reduce the punishment. But it was basically a punitive type of understanding. Generally speaking, again, terribly oversimplifying, there were Christians, which we normally call Protestants, <laughs> who said, no, we don't believe that. You accept Jesus as your savior and all the sins are forgiven. The guilt is taken away. The punishment is paid. He paid it totally on the cross. There's nothing more that we can do that we are saved by faith, not by works. <laughs> Here he's, he's quoting passage after passage after passage after passage from the New Testament. He just mocks it. He just laughs at it. I just, I mean, I hear that and I think, Okay, surely there's some Eastern Orthodox people who actually read the Bible sometimes who have got to listen to that and go, yeah, but he, he's quoting um, he's quoting scripture and all, everything he's saying, you know, it's not by works, you know, <laughs> laughing, chuckling. <laughs> like that's what the scripture says over and over again. Now, he doesn't believe it. Why doesn't he believe it? Because he doesn't believe in Sola Scriptura. If you don't believe in Sola Scriptura, you can't interpret Scripture at all. You're a complete slave to your external authority. No indulgences. None of this is acceptable. You accept Jesus as your Savior, and then 
God's wrath is taken off you because it was put on him. Yeah, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, huper hemon, in behalf of us. Um, Isaiah 53, 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's right there in scripture. You don't have to get punished anymore because he got punished for you. He's you, hear, you hear the mockery? He's just mocking the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is mocking what Jesus came to do. We're saved from the wrath of God. By Jesus' death, which is a hilasterion, a propitiation, a removal of divine wrath. The punishment for our sins, the chastisement for our sins was upon him. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He substituted for you. He died for you. He died for me. And if you accept it that way. It's hard, it's hard to listen to his mockery. Um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near him on the day of judgment um, to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did you dare to wear a clerical collar and dress up like that and stand in a pulpit and mock me and mock what I did to save my people from their sins? Then you are now right with God and everything's okay. And if you die, you go to heaven. If you believe it. Yeah, you hear you hear his contempt. For the truth it's really sad now this particular theory was repulsive to many people <laughs> yeah the truth is is often very repulsive uh, to people uh, the, the Jewish people looked at the cross of Christ and the idea that you know blood dripping from a first-century Palestinian Jew could save them um, as as uh, uh, as foolishness that's foolishness to those who are perishing uh, the Greeks seek wisdom um, Jews seek signs, but we preach Christ crucified. Uh, and as I said before, I think that this man's entire understanding of Christianity can be what it is without the cross at all. And then you had some Christians who said, all of this is just total nonsense. They weren't Christians. Anyone who looks at the death of Jesus and the fact that it does take the punishment for sin away and makes us right with God, yes, right with God in the sense of justified before him, reconciled to him through the death of his son, when people are repulsed by that, they're not Christians. Okay, they're something else, but they are not Christians. I remember once I went to the American Academy of Religion and I went to the Lesbian Christology. Okay, now this this part here, I just I just have to comment on real quick. I have no earthly idea why he would want to align himself with lesbian preachers, uh, lesbian preachers on Christology. Uh, because, hey, they agree with me. L listen to this. Meeting. I used to like to go there. <laughs> I wrote a book a little bit on that subject. But I'd go there and sit there and listen to all the speeches. And I remember once where I was in total sympathy with the speaker who said, this is nuts. It's as if God were a punitive father who had to beat his kid in order so he could be satisfied. And he's so angry that he's got to punish it so much. Other the anger doesn't go away and he can't punish us enough. So he sends his son and he beats him up on the cross or he lets him get beat up on the cross. And then the father's happy. And uh, because he punished his son sufficiently and if people believe in it, then they can go to heaven. And that woman said, 
this is absolute madness. And I wanted to, I didn't do it, but I wanted to stand up and say, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> it's total madness. It's you hear that? It's ridiculous. Unbelievable. The guy that sent me the, the link to this said, you know, dear Pastor Hines, please listen to this with an open mind. And I want to say, this is blasphemy of the highest order. This is one of the most insulting, degrading treatments of my dear Lord and Savior's death. It's not, I got to get beat up on the cross and, and I, I did satisfy divine wrath and just, you just think, it's like someone raking their fingers down a, down a chalkboard. That's not it at all. That's a caricature of what is real. God is holy, and when his holiness is violated, divine retribution and divine wrath and punishment are just as much a part of God's nature as his love is, as his mercy is. God cannot just overlook human sin. Its punishment has to be dealt with. That's what Jesus came into the world to do. The fact that you think it's madness, sir, doesn't make it madness. The fact that you despise it with everything in your soul doesn't mean that we should despise it too. You see, those of us who see the depth of our own sin and trust in the glorious death of our Lord Jesus to take that punishment away and because of it have peace with God through Jesus Christ, because of it we are saved and delivered from the wrath of God by his propitiatory shed blood on that cross, we love that glorious truth. We love God for what he did in sending Jesus to take a debt that was not his upon himself to be, yes, indeed, punished, to fall under the hammer blow of God's anger and wrath. It's not to, to bring this into human categories. I've got to abuse my child and I've got to beat up my kid on the cross. To talk about Jesus as God's kid is blasphemy. And th this part of this sermon, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't believe how can, how can someone think, I'm going to listen to this? I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. I've been studying it for many, many, many years. How can anyone think I'm actually going to be impressed with something like this? Absolute blasphemy and disgusting perversion of the Word of God. It is not biblical. Yes, it is. <laughs> One thing you'll notice in the sermon, he doesn't go to any of the texts that teach this and try to tell us what they really mean. It is not the understanding. It is Man, Mathetes in the year 130 AD, and I could multiply quotations from the patristic sources on this. That's what they thought it meant. No. And that's the, the theme for tonight. <laughs> and, and by the way, okay, so a lesbian, a lesbian on Christology agrees with him. Okay, that's great. I've also read a lot of liberals, neo-orthodox, and a lot of non-believers uh, trying to make sense out of scripture who who agree with you 100%, sir. So congratulations. The liberals, the neo-orthodox, and other God-haters are in your corner. And they think that the atonement of Christ for sin is, is madness, too. Now, the theme for tonight, then, is if that isn't how it should be understood. <laughs> then how in the world are we supposed to understand it? Everything you thought you ever knew about the cross is wrong. And so now we're going to be told what we're supposed to believe about it. But brace yourself. You're not going to get anything clear at all. The language of he bore our iniquities. Yeah, he bore our iniquities. That doesn't mean that he was punished, we're being told. That's just absurd. I can't believe that the guy that sent me the, the link to this actually thinks I'm going to go, 
Wow, that's deep. The language of um, by his wounds we are healed. Mm -hmm. The language of ransom, mm -hmm. he paid the price. Yes. The language of... Uh, in other words, everything in the whole Bible on the topic, how am I supposed to understand it since I don't believe anything that it says? Redemption. The language of propitiation. The language of expiation. The language that says when he died on the cross, all the requirements of the law of God were fulfilled. That's right. Everything was made right. Yeah. Even uh, the understanding that because of Christ's death on the cross, any wrath or anger of God that he would have toward his creatures is removed. Those are biblical teachings. <laughs> <clears throat> now that I've explained to you, I don't believe any of it. So how do I explain all this stuff about bearing the wrath and satisfying divine justice and bearing our iniquities and taking the punishment away? How, how do I explain all this? Well, as I said, if you're hoping that he's going to do that, uh, your hope is in vain. That we are bought with a price. He purchased us with his blood. Mm -hmm. And he was mocked, spit upon, reviled, beaten, uh, whipped. Yeah, and that's what Isaiah 53 explains. For our iniquities, for our transgressions. For the sake of our peace. Yeah, that's what all that was for. How could anyone not see that? Well, you can't see it because you're blind. Left half dead and then dragged the cross and somebody had to carry it and then he was nailed to it and hung on it. And then they put him in a spear in his side and he died. Yeah, how do you understand all that suffering if you don't see it as the punishment for sin? As I said, don't hold your breath. And that's the center of the Christian faith. <laughs> Yeah, and it doesn't make any sense in this guy's system at all. And as I said, having listened, this is the third time through this sermon, this man's understanding of Christianity can be what it is without the cross. The passion of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross is the center of the Christian faith. And it is a salvation, a healing, a redemption, a ransom, a deliverance, a liberation, uh, a healing, a making right, a reconciliation, all this is true, but how then do you understand it? How is it to be understood? Okay, you've said that enough times now. Why don't you get to it? And then I kept thinking, there's 42 minutes left to go in the sermon. I kept thinking, so, okay, since everything Scripture says about it is wrong, and you don't believe it, and you find it mad and disgusting, how are we supposed to understand this? As I said, don't hold your breath. Well, I'm going to try now. <laughs> to explain how the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition tr understands this, <laughs> beginning with the, the interpretation of the Bible, Isaiah, yeah. the Law, the Psalms, the Prophets, yes. yeah, and the four Gospels and please. the writings of the Apostles please do. through history. Mm -hmm. Please do. We've been saying here, and uh, some apologies to those who were here Friday and yesterday, we have to repeat a bit. <coughs> it is our conviction that Christianity appeared on planet Earth as a gospel and the gospel is a good news but it's not good news in general it's a specific technical term evangelion which means the good news of a king that he has been victorious in battle over his enemies no it doesn't 
euangelion means good news. And the way that the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in behalf of our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, is Jesus a king? Yes, indeed he is. He sits on the throne of his father, David. Is he victorious? Yes, indeed he is, because he has propitiated the wrath of God against sin and he has redeemed his people. And the atonement of Christ does have cosmic effects. Romans 8, 21, the whole creation will be redeemed uh, by the death of Christ. But what he just said is not true. And that he has triumphed, that he has conquered and his subjects. And See, the whole Christus Victor model um, only makes sense. It can only be what it is if you understand that the death of Christ takes the punishment for sin away. It's because he has done that that he is victorious. That's what these people don't get. You can't have the, the cross as a demonstration of victory unless it removes God's wrath against sin and reconciles these people to God. And his people are now saved. They are now saved. They are now protected. Saved from what? Protected from what? The scripture says saved from the wrath of God. From the punishment for sin. Nothing can harm them. No evil can touch them. The last enemy death itself has been destroyed. And everything has now been made right. Everything is the way that it ought to be. The king is rejoicing and everyone is rejoicing with him. And the deliverance has taken place. Deliverance from what? From the wrath of God against sin. That's the Christian gospel, basically. No, it's not. If your understanding of the gospel has no reference to Jesus taking the punishment for sin away, then you're not talking about New Testament Christianity at all, or Old Testament. This gospel also presupposes or includes that Christianity is therefore a conviction about a person. Christianity is not a spiritual path. Christianity is not a moral code. Christianity is not a cultic ritual system. Christianity is not a philosophy or an ethical system. And I would even uh, would like to say very clearly, Christianity is not a religion. It's the fulfillment of all Christia, of all religion, and it's not a religion at all. It is the activity of God, the one true God, and the knowledge of that God, and the understanding and the communion with that God that is given to human beings forever as a free gift through the incarnation on the planet Earth of God's divine Son. That's grotesquely reductionistic. Uh, does God reveal things about himself through the incarnation? Of course. Of course he does. Does Jesus teach us the, the true vision of the character of God, the heart of God? You want to understand who God is, you look to Jesus Christ, without a doubt, yes. But the purpose for which he came into the world was to save his people from their sins. Now that's not reducing it. That's all you guys ever talk about is the cross, the cross, the cross. That is the heart and soul of the Christian faith, however. Um, there is a path of moral uprightness that we are called upon by God to walk. Um, Christianity does give us a biblical ethic that we are to follow um, as those who know God and are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
but to simply describe it as it is the impartation of knowledge to the incarnation. Um, no, it's not. No, it's not. The incarnation's primary mission um, is to make known the Father and to reconcile people to God through the death of, of Jesus Christ. And that's Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> and the very first Christian creed that you find if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke particularly, the first confession is the confession that answers the question of Jesus to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Not, what do you think of my teaching? How do you relate to my doctrine? What do you think of my philosophy? Would you like to follow my path? No. Who do you say that I but, but those things aren't excluded. I mean, you look at other things that Jesus said in the, in the Gospels. He says, if anyone wills to do my will, uh, he will know that the doctrine is true. Uh, so uh, anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. It, it is a path. Um, it, it does include those other things. It's not to the exclusion of them. Um, but, but yes, in Matthew 16, it's also, I believe, in, in Mark 8 at Caesarea Philippi when um, Jesus asks his disciples that question, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's certainly highly significant. I am. <clears throat> and in Mark and Luke, the confession is made by Peter, the leader of the apostles. You are the Christ. So the minute that he is called the Christ with a definite article, the anointed, the Messiah, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. So there's a confession about him as being the Christ. Now, at the time of Jesus, there were many, many, many theories about what a Christ would be like, what he would do, how it would work. There was not one clear idea at all. And in fact, what Christians, we Christians anyway, Eastern Orthodox Christians believe, is that the disclosure and the revelation of what it meant for Jesus to be Christ was outrageously blasphemous to most of the people of the time. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say to the Jews it was a scandalon, and to the Greeks it was idiocy. Moria, it's where you get the word moron. I ironically, it it's those things to this guy too. <laughs> Sorry. Moronic. It was scandalous <laughs> and moronic teaching. Just as it is to you, sir. But he's confessed as the anointed one, the Christ. But is a very unique understanding of what it meant to be the Christ. And what it will be, because we're pressed for time here tonight, it will be the most outrageous teaching that the Christ is the suffering servant of Yahweh. He is the one who is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Yeah, but why does he suffer? Oh, that's right. For our iniquities, for our sins, in behalf of our having broken the law, he bears the curse, the punishment. Who before his shears is dumb is the 51st chapter of the prophet Isaiah, who does not open his mouth who bears the scorn of people, who is ridiculed without beauty or form, who bears the sin of all, who is the man... B bears the sin of all? You mean the punishment for sin? And of sorrows covered with grief, you know, with malefactors in his death, with a rich man in his burial. And Christians interpreted that as the reason for confessing Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ.
because all those things happened to Jesus and then he was raised from the dead and the tomb was empty <laughs> And then they had to say, what was that all about? And probably it took them a little while to figure it out or to see what it was. And probably the main person of early Christianity who saw it most clearly and explained it most explicitly was a Pharisaic Jewish disciple of Gamaliel named Shuel, who became Paul, the apostle. <laughs> Right, but the thing is, though, they understood it because it had been revealed to them by God. That's that's the whole point. So there's the first confession. Jesus is the Christ, but the Christ has to be crucified. See, and that's what, in his system, there really is no reason for him to be crucified. Because God has no punishment for sin. You're going to hear later in the sermon, God doesn't want to punish anybody, he says. And I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I want to try to keep each one of these under an hour. But let's see, we are 20 minutes and 18 seconds into that sermon, and it's 36, 36.16 left to go. So uh, that's installment number one of Radio Free Constantinople. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church, located at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee, and you've been listening to the Protestant Witness Podcast. Please feel free to join us for worship any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. sharp, where we open the Word of God together, sing His praises, and rejoice in the gospel of our risen Lord. You can find us on the web at www.bridwellheightspca.org. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.